Hello, and a very warm welcome to the Healthy for Men podcast. My name is Gershon Portnoy, and I'm the interim editor of Healthy for Men magazine. And in this episode, I'm joined by author, writer, sports nutritionist, and running coach, Matt Fitzgerald. And we're going to be talking about his amazing new book, Comeback Quotient, Mastering Mental Fitness for Sports and Life, which looks at the science and the stories behind some of sport's greatest comebacks. Now, when we say comebacks, we're not talking about Liverpool overturning a 3-0 deficit against Barcelona, although that does also come into it in a way. We're talking about some incredibly Herculean efforts from athletes who have overcome some serious adversity to still succeed. The book takes a look at what it takes to bounce back from major setbacks in both sport and life. It's an absolutely brilliant book, and if you're interested in sports psychology, inspirational stories, the power of the mind over the body, or you just love great sporting stories, then you need to go and read this book. But don't rush off just yet, because first, allow Matt to whet your appetite. Hi, Matt. Welcome to the Healthy for Men podcast. It's great to be with you. How are you doing? Doing okay, all things considered. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there, are, there are a lot of things to consider at the moment, aren't there? I'm, I'm sort of asking most people how things have been over the last 12 months or so. Yeah. And especially, honestly, being from the United States, when I talk to someone in another country, they're... Uh, <laughs> It's just, it's different than it was a few years ago. People are asking me if the walls are still standing here, here at home and, and they are, thankfully. <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> so yeah, I mean- Still in one piece then. Yeah, I mean, but it's, yeah, it's been a crazy year plus for, for the entire world and, and maybe just a little extra crazy here in the States. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting because obviously considering what the book is about, helping to people to kind of deal with adversity and how you face adversity as certainly athletes that, that you focused in the, on in the book. I just wondered if there was some extra significance for you with this book being published right in the middle of the pandemic when so many of us you know for so many different reasons all need huge amounts of resolve and resilience yes i mean obviously i did not plan it that way you know i did not know a pandemic was coming when i started writing the book but but even then it has long been my philosophy that endurance sports in particular which is what i'm involved in is training for life running is like you know like a lot of people who chose running i chose it because i was terrible at every other sport <laughs> and and had a bit of a knack for running but those those are painful sports you know like there's no ball there's no points there's no timeouts it's just kind of you alone with your suffering and when you embrace a sport like that it really does train you for discomfort and adversity and stress and in life in general just you know off the race course you find that you're a changed person and when I was younger, you know, I was all about improving, you know, can I beat my best marathon time? Can I qualify for the Ironman World Championship? As I got older, my motivations changed and it became more about that personal journey, that growth journey. And I have been through my share of adversity in life and I really came to appreciate the value of being an athlete in being able to handle you know, because things will go wrong. You know, if your life is perfect today, well, wait a day. <laughs> it's coming. And, and and so I did not see the pandemic coming, but I knew something was that we all get our turn in the barrel. And it just so happened that we all got a turn at, at the same time. And it definitely made the timing of the publication of the book pretty apposite. Yeah, just 
hearing what you're saying there, I think there's so much truth in that, certainly in for endurance sports as well. And the connection to kind of like learning to deal with all sorts of adversity or obstacles or, you know, any, anything that might happen in, in life. I, I can I can really relate to that. Now, in the book itself, there's a lot of stories about many, many different athletes who, some of whom, a lot of whom, in fact, you, you, you spoke to for the book. I just wondered, you know, there's so many great stories in there about these kind of inspirational comebacks. You know, they're, they're really kind of like motivational to, to read. I certainly found when I was reading it, you know, so inspired and like really made me want to kind of like do so much. Did you kind of have a personal favorite yourself or maybe there was more than one that maybe you could share with the listeners? Yeah, you know, I, I wanted to be careful to define come back as broadly as possible. So, you know, anytime something goes wrong by any definition, if things aren't the way you wanted them to be, then you're in a situation where you need to come back. It could be something as simple as your shoe coming untied during a race to getting cancer. There's examples of both (laughs) in the book. Yeah. So I wanted to to go broad And, and really my favorite comeback story is always whichever one I've read most recently, (laughs) you know, because that's kind of the virtue of just how diverse they are. But one I've been thinking about a lot lately is Rob Krar. He's a a Canadian expatriate who who lives in Flagstaff, Arizona, here in the States now, and very, very gifted ultra runner, but he suffers from major depression. And every runner gets a little depressed when they get hurt. And Rob has this double, double whammy of mental illness, you know, mood disorder and a propensity to get injured. And uh, a few years ago, when and he was pushing 40 years old, which is you know getting long in the tooth for an ultra runner, he essentially his knee exploded with like half mile to go in a race. As tough as he is, he finished the race, but then he had to have reconstructive surgery. It was looking like his career might be over. I mean, for someone who depends on being outdoors and testing their body, sort of as self medication for for depression, he found himself just laid up immobile for weeks. And he went deep, deep into the hole, had suicidal ideations. I mean, he was as low as you can get, but he kind of found his way through because it wasn't, you know, he'd been living with this condition for years at this point. And some of the same resilience that allowed him to win 100 mile races, he put into dealing with the worst thing that had ever happened to him. It certainly wasn't like flipping a switch, but it's fascinating to hear the way he talks about his depression is almost clinical. It's almost as if he's talking about someone else. Just very matter of fact, he, it's, he doesn't do the, the poor me thing. He doesn't sensationalize. He also doesn't minimize. I think he just, that sort of matter of fact attitude of acceptance allowed him to slowly work his way through it. And then less than a year after this catastrophe befell him, he won the, the Leadville 100, you know, major ultra marathon that he had, he'd won previously. So it was very symbolic for him to be able to come back. And he actually almost broke the course record at age 40. So that's just, and people knew his story. So there was just a, an outpouring of goodwill for him and just you know, a magical experience. And yeah, it just gives you goosebumps to read a story like, like that. But uh, just one of many in the book, for no, sure. No, absolutely. There's so many, but I couldn't agree more. I mean, I found it really moving to, to, to read Rob's story. It is, it is really in- incredible. And it's really interesting that you talk about that kind of acceptance that you had, because Obviously, one of the things that you that you talk about in the book is this term ultra realist, which I think is really all about acceptance. But I think it would be great to hear a little bit more about how you kind of came to discovering this kind of term ultra realist and attributing it to so many of these athletes that, that you write about in the book. Yeah, it'd be great to maybe just kind of like explain to the listeners how you kind of think about ultra realists. 
Yeah, you know, the reason I wrote this book kind of is that, you know, this is not my first book. And, and anytime I, you know, because it's a lot of work, right? <laughs> to, to fill 240 pages. So you have to feel like there's a need for what you're writing. And, and that's how I always go about it. Like I write the book I wish existed already. And, you know, I'm not a sports psychologist, but any coach kind of wears that hat to a certain degree in working with athletes. And as an athlete yourself, you have to pay attention to that dimension of the sport if you want to get anywhere. In reading up on studying existing sports psychology, there's a big focus on when they look at, you know, adversity and resilience and comebacks, they tend to look at traits like psychological characteristics that very resilient athletes have. But my feeling was always, well, what can I do with that? Sort of like telling a basketball player they'd be better at basketball if they were taller. It's like, well, yeah. <laughs> I'm done growing. So, you know, if you tell someone that, you know, optimism is a huge part of being a resilient athlete, it's like, okay, good for them. So I, in my approach to this was to look at what do the masters of the comeback actually do? Like, what's the process? Forget about the underlying psychology. What's the process they go through? to execute an amazing comeback. And what I found was they're all, you know, even though comebacks come in infinite flavors, they're all really going through the same process, which is a process of fully facing the reality that confronts them, which really happens in three steps, which depending on the situation can, can happen simultaneously. But first it's accepting the reality, then embracing it. And embracing it doesn't mean you, you try to convince yourself you're glad it happened. It just means you commit to making the best of it you know, even though it's not the way you wanted it. And then, you know, the obvious third step is addressing the reality. I use that expression when life hands you lemons, turn them into lemonade. That is all about ultra realism. Like you didn't want lemons, but if that's what you got, you have to accept it. You can't solve a problem that you refuse to admit exists, right? So you, you say, okay, I didn't want lemons, but I got them. Embracing it just means let's see what I can do with them since I have them. And then, you know, addressing the reality is making the damn lemonade, the, the, the final step in the process. Yeah, I mean, it's such a great philosophy, obviously for sport, but for life as well. As you're saying, there's so much there that people can take, you know, no, no matter what you're doing, you don't need to be an endurance athlete to realize how profound that message is and, you know, what you can do about it. I mean, one of the things I really enjoyed in the book, there, there was a study that you referenced, which uses ACT, which is acceptance and, and commitment therapy. And in, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't you know, need to tell, tell the story. I'm sure you can tell it a lot better than me, but they did a, a study in the book where they took a load of women that don't exercise regularly and put them on exercise bikes. And then half of them were given some acceptance and commitment therapy halfway through and half weren't. And the results were kind of amazing, I found, because, you know, people that were kind of given this therapy, in other words, facing the truth, facing what is actually facing you and having to deal with it, did so much better when they kind of got back on the bikes and, and the other half didn't. I thought that was really, really, really interesting. And I just wondered if, is that something that you now use yourself or, or have you got experience of using that or maybe other people that have kind of used that sort of therapy? Yeah, you know, the wisdom behind that form of cognitive behavioral therapy, ACT, is ancient. In the book, I go all the way back to the Buddha, who was, was it five, 500 years BC or whatever, is talking about the importance of accepting reality, you know, and working with what life gives you. And so, you know, if, if something is fundamentally true, if, if it's simply true that you will cope better with adversity if you fully face reality, it's not as if that's going to be discovered for the first time in the 21st century, right? So it's been interesting. If you trace this wisdom throughout history, you see it popping up again and again and again. And then, you know, when modern psychology comes around, of course, 
the better psychologists are going to realize that there's there's truth in this wisdom. So ACT is an outgrowth of that. It's just another form of recognizing that if an experience, let's just say endurance exercise, if, if an experience is just going to be unpleasant or going to have unpleasant parts, if you're going to have to go through discomfort in order to achieve some reward or goal, then you might as well just accept it and not sort of wish it away. What a lot of people do, you know, the women in the study, they were non-exercisers. Well, usually non-exercisers, you know, everyone knows it's good for you. Everyone knows you should do it. So if you're not doing it, it probably means you don't like it, <laughs> right? I think that's, so, a, that's a fair, fair point. Yeah. So, you know, the, the training for these women, you know, was all about, hey, hey, it does kind of suck and it always will. So you know, instead of getting on the bike and just sort of having a bad attitude or, or you know, just sort of vainly hoping it doesn't suck for some reason this time, even though it always has, just accept it as part of the experience. And, you know, it sounds like, well, geez, that's kind of squishy. Like, does that really work? Well, it does. <laughs> What's so cool about that particular study is that there was no exercise training at all. Both groups, they didn't train before and they didn't train between. All they got was their minds were meddled with and it made they improved by 15% from the first trial to the second. So, I mean, for those who are inclined to dismiss the importance of, of mental fitness, I point to studies like that. It's like, no, we can actually put numbers on the performance benefit you get from mental training. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely huge, isn't it? And it's exactly how I felt when I read that in the book. You'd be very, have a very difficult time to argue against evidence like that. And yeah, I mean, I was just wondering, you just talked about mental fitness, which is obviously so much what this book is about. And there's so much of the focus on, especially you know, when it comes to sport athletes, is on physical fitness. And in fact, you know, for all of us, in terms of like that, those of us that are into our exercise, maybe do stuff competitively or not, or even just for fun, a lot of it is about physical fitness and staying in good physical shape and so on. But I just wondered, you know, is there too much of that? Is it, and is it coming at the expense of what we can say is mental fitness? I certainly believe so. I think that that's something that anyone who is an athlete of any description can attest to. And there are obvious reasons for it. Like physical fitness, humans are very visual. So if you can see physical improvement, I mean, even an athlete who is fit usually looks fit, right? It doesn't, it's not the same way. You could have 10 athletes on the start line of a marathon, all equally physically fit. But can you tell by looking at them who is the best at coping with adversity? No. And also, you know, I think science contributes as well because in science, there's always a bias toward what can be measured. And we've been able to measure components of the physiological underpinnings of physical fitness. We've been able to measure a lot of those things for a very long time. And part of the reason that books like mine are coming online now is that there's finally a belated revolution occurring in our understanding of mental fitness, because we are actually able to open up the black box that is the, the human mind and see, it's like, oh, lo and behold, once we can finally measure what the brain is doing, we see that it's actually doing more than the body is. So yeah, there, there are lots of reasons that that is the case, but still, it remains the case that athletes typically, they tend to view their mind as going along for the ride. It's like, oh, I just need to get fitter. I need to work on my skills and you know, my brain will just get better automatically, you know, as I focus on mental fitness. And that happens to a degree. But if you really want to realize your full potential, you have to uh, give more than lip service to the, the mental component and just, you know, have an intentional approach toward developing that. Mm. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because 
there's so much that can be taken from this that you know can relate to everyday life. And I just wanted to talk to you about how you see that happening in a, in a kind of practical everyday way. Because of course, in the book, there's, as I say, there's a lot of stories in there. They're brilliant stories, but they, they are often focused around an athlete who does a particular sport, a particular event, or they've got a particular goal in mind, whether it's a, you know, a race, a competition, whatever it is. And of course, they're, they're focused on that and they can, their comeback might involve doing something at a particular event. That's the kind of the general gist of it. Yeah. But of course, life and everyday life isn't necessarily like that. I mean, it can be, of course, we can be training for a particular thing or whatever it is, learning for something. Or, But I just wondered how you saw it working in, terms of, in a transferable way for life as well, in terms of what you were saying before, if you do end up getting lemons, make some lemonade. Yeah, there's research in that area as well, where you know psychologists will look at different psychological coping skills in athletes versus non-athletes. A lot, most of these tests are done completely, you know, they're done in street clothes in rooms at a low heart rate. You know, they're not physical tests. And you can see how the brains and minds of athletes are being changed from their athletic experiences. Just to give you one example, there's something known as inhibitory control, which is the ability to resist immediate impulse for the sake of some longer term goal. The example I always give is like if you want to lose five kilos and someone and your favorite dessert is German chocolate cake and somebody unexpectedly hands you a slice, you would need inhibitory control to be able to resist the chocolate cake and stay focused on your your weight loss goal. In endurance sports, it's huge, right? Because you get 20 miles into a marathon and you want to quit, that's your immediate impulse, but you have a goal to reach the finish line as quickly as possible. So you need to override that perfectly natural instinct to avoid unnecessary suffering in order to stay focused. And well-trained athletes crush uh, tests of inhibitory control. There's one called the Stroop test. You could actually find it online. Anyone listening could, could go on, online and do a Stroop test. I mean, you, you could do it at your desk. It's entirely a cognitive test. It's not a physical test, but through endurance training, you know, training in other sports, your brain changes. I mean, you can't see it, but just as you know, your muscles might get bigger, your veins enlarge, your brain changes structurally. Part of the brain that's involved in inhibitory control is called the anterior cingulate cortex. And that part of the brain in well-trained athletes is visibly larger, like significantly, it just, it's like muscle hypertrophy. So these are the sorts of skills that like you may cultivate them through training and competition, but I mean, you've only got one brain. So you use that same brain in, at work, in relationships, in pandemics, you know, whatever. So it, it all, it really is training for life. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. Loving the science, really, really so fascinating. I think another of the, the great things about the book that I really enjoyed as well was there's so many little nuggets, little takeaways. Overall, obviously, there's so much you can take from this, the big message, clearly. But I love the little nuggets, the little takeaways, the little things you take with you. And the amazing thing is, is that I actually even used one this morning. I just wanted to mention it uh-huh. because there's a great anecdote in there because you write quite a lot about Catherine Granger, the Team GB rower. Somewhere along her story, there's an anecdote about the trampoline, the finish line trampoline. And I don't want to, I think you'll do it more justice than I will. So I'll let you tell, tell the anecdote. <laughs> And then I'll I'll tell you a little bit about how I used it this morning. Yeah. So one of the important skills that, you know, any athlete or human being needs to develop is the capacity to stay in the moment, to be process focused versus outcome focused. I mean, it's okay to set goals, but people who become 
fixated on a goal that they want to achieve become in a way dependent on it. And you see that in championship level athletes all the time that they talk about having a process focus that they want to master the game and trust that outcomes will take care of themselves. But it's very natural. And you see even great athletes like Catherine kind of slip out of that process focused mindset and start worrying about like, am I going to win or am I going to lose? Well, you're more likely to win if you actually stop worrying about winning <laughs> and focus on rowing. And she worked with a sports psychologist in, in through most of her career. And when the, the psychologist she was working with at the time saw that she and her teammate, her boatmate, were getting a little bit too fixated on will we or will we, will we not win, he gave her this image to focus on. So he told them, during your race, when you catch yourself, your mind looking into the future and worrying about the finish line, imagine that there's a trampoline position there that's been tipped over on its side. So any thought you direct out of the present moment and toward that finish line bounces off it and comes back to you. And in the race itself, that ended up happening. And it, it benefited her because you never know how a race is going to unfold. Even if you're the favorite and you expect to win, you know, you might not be in first place at 500 meters. And they weren't. You can have a great plan. Like Mike Tyson said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, when things start to unfold in a way you kind of don't want them to in a race, it's so easy to forget your plan. And Catherine started to do that. She started to think, uh oh, we're in fourth place. You know, maybe we won't win. But she remembered that trampoline image. Her thought went to the finish line, bounced right back. And she remembered to just focus on one stroke at a time. And they ended up winning that race. Yeah, I love that. And as I was saying, I was actually early this morning, I was on my run and I was doing a fairly intense run and probably a couple of miles away from home, I did start to really picture the finish line in, in this sense it was just getting home. Mm -hmm. It was getting quite painful. And I just, that image, you know, the trampoline suddenly flashed into my mind. I thought, okay. And I turned that trampoline on its side and I put it outside my house in my mind and it bounced <laughs> straight back. And it was amazing. I've, I mean, you know, I know that all these things aren't necessarily for everyone. Of course, we're all different, but this absolutely worked for me. It was brilliant because there I was back in that place. I wasn't sort of two miles further, further down the line. Uh, so yeah, I thought that was absolutely brilliant. I, I love a great little nugget like that. So yeah, that, that was great. The other thing that's is interesting that people may not realize about the book is that there's also a kind of partly autobiographical part of it because you actually write about a comeback of your own doing alongside writing the book, which I thought was really interesting. And so I was wondering, it seems that from the experience of actually writing the book, you're able yourself to put so many of the learnings into practice yourself. Yeah, um, not to sound pretentious, but there's a quote from the philosopher Michel Foucault that I absolutely love where he said, to the effect, I'm paraphrasing, but what's the point of writing a book that doesn't change you? And that really resonates with me because I don't write a book just to show or share what I know. That's part of it. You have to have something to communicate, but you do change. If I don't know if it's the kind of book I want to write, you do change in the process of writing it. And one of the things I wanted people to understand as they read this book that I believe in this message deeply, deeply enough that I practice it myself. As an athlete myself, I really care about my performance. So I'm not just going to do any old thing. So this quest to become an ultra realist, I wasn't just trying to persuade readers to, to get on board with it, but I was showing them, hey, I, I'm walking the talk. 
Um, so I had done, you know, I'm a runner slash triathlete. I had done one Ironman triathlon way back in, in 2002 and actually signed up for four others and, and afterward never made it to the start line of any of them. I, I'm, I'm injury prone. But then uh, as I was writing this book, I was making a, a comeback attempt. So that first Ironman I did at age 31, the second one, my long belated uh, comeback to uh, Ironman triathlon was I had just turned 48 when I, when I did that race. And my goal was to beat my younger self in that race. So yeah, you, you see, you know, there's like these little mini chapters between the main chapters of the book where I, I take you through the process and I was writing these in real time. So there, it was kind of a high wire act. There was no guarantee that I was going to make it to this start line, or if I made it to the start, if I would make it to the finish. When I was reading, I, I did think this is this pretty ballsy stuff here because, <laughs> you know, when the Ironman training is, as, as you know yourself from experience, so many things can go wrong with that. Yes. And, and plenty of things did go wrong, but I wanted folks to see that like that. It was even for me as the guy preaching this message, it's not easy. But that real progress, if you, if you commit to it, if you understand what you're trying to achieve, and it's a very simple concept, this, this idea of fully facing reality, if you understand what you're trying to achieve and you commit to the process, you will make tremendous progress. And I, I won't give away <laughs> the ending, but I had, I can say in that, in that second Ironman, I had a very different and much better experience, really the, the entire journey than I would have had if I hadn't made that same commitment. Yeah, we're not, we're not going to be giving away anything here at all so people can read it for themselves. But, you know, I agree. I, I think it was really, really interesting um, what happened as a result of those experiences and, and what you learn. And obviously, you know, you, as you said, you've written lots of different books. And I know that previously you, you wrote How Bad You Want It, which kind of looks at the power of mind over the body. Do you think your kind of overall mindset and approach to life, you know, not just your sort of sporting endeavours, but life itself, do you think that's changed as a result of these books that you've written? Yes, uh, very, very much so. So interestingly, I got COVID very early on. I was in Atlanta just over a year ago for the U.S. Olympic Trials Marathon and then the Atlanta Marathon itself. So I went out there to watch the trials, to run the Atlanta Marathon, came home. A few days later, I was coughing and got very sick, ended up recovering. But months later, I developed these long COVID symptoms, um, you know, this kind of chronic fatigue type of thing, you know, the brain fog, the whole deal. And, you know, by far and away, the worst health setback I've ever experienced. You know, I'm, I'm in my seventh month of this long haul journey and it's still with me. Like wow. I, I'm not running right now. I'm, I'm unable to train right now. It's affected my heart. So that's a big deal. And it, then it, that's the kind of thing, if it happens to you, it's put up or shut up, right? Like, yeah, goodness. <laughs> yeah like, it, you know, to answer your question, like, if I've changed for the better through, the, it's one thing to, to make an Ironman come back. That's pretty low stakes, right? <laughs> but this is life. This is my health. And the way I'm coping with it is manifestly different than it would have been if, if I didn't have these experiences. You know, one, one thing, you know, I have family, I have friends and they all care. They all want to see me get better. And they keep using these words like hope. Oh, I hope you know, if I have a better day, I hope the trend continues or, you know, I, I wish that that didn't happen to you. And those words, honestly, are not even in my vocabulary. They have no resonance whatsoever. Like if I have a good day, I do not actively hope that tomorrow is even better. I just I, I'm grateful for today. I take steps to build on it, but I don't waste any energy at all wishing it hadn't happened or hoping I get better. I'm truly just trying to make 
the absolute best of where I am now. Because I feel like if I can do that, then I'm okay whether or not I eventually get better. And that's not just a matter like I'm not doing this for the camera. I'm doing it almost instinctively at this point because you know I, I've been inculcated in these ideas for for so long that they actually they're almost second nature for me now. Wow, uh, that sounds like you're been through and continuing to go through a, a really tough time. But yeah, I mean, at the same time, I guess it's amazing that you've that you've had these experiences and you've able you're able to kind of put them into practice. I mean, there's a an amazing example of how we can sort of transfer the sort of message from this book, you know, from sport in, into life right there. So, yeah. Well, look, we uh, obviously wish you a, a very rapid recovery. I'm not going to use the word hope. Uh, <laughs> I'm going I'm to wish you a very rapid recovery and, and uh, be great to sort of hear that you're up and about and running and and, and being active again as, as soon as possible. But in, in the meantime, thanks very, very much for joining us on the Healthy for Men podcast. It's been amazing to talk to you about the book. And yeah, I hope it all goes from strength to strength. And hopefully uh, we'll catch up with you again soon. That sounds good. I've really enjoyed talking to you. And just a reminder that Matt's book is called The Comeback Quotient. It's published by Aurum and it's available right now in paperback and as an audiobook. And what's more, we're going to be running an exclusive extract from the book in the next issue of Healthy for Men, which will be on sale from April the 17th in all Holland and Barrett stores and at hollandandbarrett.com. Thanks for listening to the Healthy for Men podcast, and we'll see you again very soon. Goodbye. Goodbye.